In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, cleanse my heart and my lips, Almighty God, that I may proclaim your gospel worthily. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus was standing one day by the lake of Gennesaret with the crowd pressing round him, listening to the word of God, when he caught sight of two boats close to the bank. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, it was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and pay out your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, We worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I will pay out the nets. And when they had done this, they netted such a huge number of fish that the nets began to tear. So they signaled to their companions in the other boat to come and help them. When these came, they filled the two boats to sinking point. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the knees of Jesus, saying, Leave me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were completely overcome by the catch they had made. So also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were Simon's partners. But Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on it is men you will catch. Then bringing their boats back to the land, they left everything and followed him. Today's Lucan account of the call of St. Peter violates and debunks three modern assumptions. First, knowledge and experience guarantee results. Second, personal identity is based on autonomy from all external authority. Third, choice of a candidate should be made on the basis of personal merit. Peter's vast knowledge and experience as a fisherman did not guarantee him a catch. In fact, the carpenter's son seems to know more about fishing than he did. It seems ludicrous and insulting for a fisherman to take instructions from a carpenter on the trade which the former should be an expert. To listen to the latter would amount to ceding all authority to one who had no authority to speak on the matter. Finally, one could question our Lord's choice being the omnipotent and omniscient God that he is, couldn't our Lord come up with a better candidate, especially when the candidate of his choice seems doomed for failure? What unites all these three modern assumptions, which seem to be important fundamental assumptions of modern times, is the exclusion of God from the picture. In fact, we see here in the call of St. Peter, and in fact in the vocation of a very Christian, the reversal of the sin of Adam. Adam and Eve, who submitted to the temptations of the serpent, were guilty of seeking knowledge independent of God's wisdom, autonomy free from obedience to God's holy will, and sought an identity that desired to supplant the sovereignty of God by wanting to be gods in their own right. In today's passage, we see Peter, who is unlike Adam. He was humble enough to listen to our Lord, obey his instructions, 
and finally acknowledged his own sinfulness and unworthiness. Yet our Lord calls him. This story reminds us that we are indeed meant to be gods, not by our own doing, but in the words of St. Artanasius, to become by grace everything which God is by nature. The devil's lie to Adam is not that one day we can become gods, but that we can become gods without any reference to Almighty God and without the grace poured out on us to the sacrifice of his son on the cross. So the real tragedy is that we have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of divinity. Neither divinity nor humanity are defined by power, and a limitless autonomy is not what makes one a god. On the contrary, unlimited autonomy is what makes one an antichrist. Absolute autonomy does not free us from the authority of God, but subjugates us to the tyranny of sin. When we conflate freedom with autonomy, and thereby pathologize obedience, we do not become divine, we become demons. If such autonomy demonizes us, it is humble obedience which divinizes us. So do not be afraid of your unworthiness or lack, but trust in the Lord's saving and sanctifying grace. Obey his word, and he will make you, spiritual leaven lovers that you are, into spiritual fishermen to catch men for the kingdom of God. So do not be afraid, for our Lord will make you fishers of men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Cleanse my heart and my lips, Almighty God, that I may proclaim your gospel worthily. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. The Pharisees and the scribes said to Jesus, John's disciples are always fasting and saying prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees too, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus replied, Surely you cannot make the bridegroom's attendants fast while the bridegroom is still with them. But a time will come, the time for the bridegroom to be taken away from them. That will be the time when they will fast. He also told them this parable. No one tears a piece from a new cloak to put it on an old cloak. If he does, not only will he have torn the new one, but a piece taken from the new will not match the old. And nobody puts new wine into old skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and then run out, and the skins will be lost. No, new wine must be put into fresh skins, and nobody who has been drinking old wine once new. The old is good, he says. The Gospel of the Lord Then Sirach reminds us that there is a time for everything. There is a time to fast and there is a time to feast. For most of us, feasting seems so much easier. But as far as the Pharisees and the scribes were concerned, that was the wrong answer to give when asked what would they consider as living a righteous life. Feasting seems altogether too hedonistic 
whereas good men were expected to reign in their passions through fasting. Today's passage, in its various versions, is found in all three synoptic gospels, but one should not immediately conclude that they mean the same thing in all three. The subtle, nuanced differences will show that the emphasis in each gospel is different. For St. Luke, this passage shows us the basis of Judaism and Christianity parting ways, as would be evidenced by his account of the early church in the Acts of the Apostles. Although Christianity would have sprung up from Judaism, it can no longer be deemed as a mere offshoot sect of Judaism. Although it had undeniably Jewish roots, Christianity was an entirely new reality. Attempting to harmonize both traditions at their core will result in the same ridiculous scenarios as trying to patch an old cloak with cloth torn from a new cloak or in trying to pour new wine to old wine skins, which can no longer stretch to accommodate the fermentation process. Both scenarios highlight the incompatibility of the old and the new dispensation. Only here in St. Luke's version that the Baptist disciples are commended for not just one pious practice, which is fasting, but two. They are always fasting and saying prayers, in contrast with the Lord's disciples who are accused of always eating and drinking, an allusion to drunken debauchery. But the idea of fasting and praying among the Jews is specifically focused on awaiting the coming Messiah, as part of God's definitive intervention in the end times. But the rules change once the Messiah arrives. Our Lord's use of the analogy of the attendants awaiting the arrival of the bridegroom makes sense. These attendants cannot eat before the bridegroom has eaten. They must make the necessary preparations for the feast, and they can only start eating after the bridegroom has arrived. But the use of this analogy is not just another common-sense comparison. It is deeply scriptural and meant to be a fulfillment text. The prophet Isaiah uses the same imagery of a bridegroom as a description of God. As the bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall God rejoice in you. If Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy, the wait is over. The bridegroom has arrived. So it is time to feast. The fasting has ended. We see, we see an example of this great feasting in a banquet thrown by Levi, or Matthew, the tax collector, after he turns over a new leaf. But this does not mean that fasting will no longer have any significance for Christians since the Messiah has arrived. There is a new reason for fasting. When a time for the bridegroom to be taken away from them, that will be the time when they will fast. This is certainly an allusion to his death. Christian fasting and abstinence will now be done as an act of communion with the passion of our Lord. Fasting has not become obsolete. It has only taken on a fresh meaning, just as new wine must be put into fresh skins. <clears throat> After advocating new wine skins for new wine, the passage ends with the final cryptic statement, the old is good, which is unique to St. Luke's Gospel and not found elsewhere in parallel passages. At first glance, this statement seems to contradict the earlier statement 
which favours the new. We find clarity when we realise that our Lord may have been quoting the Pharisees who refused to accept the newness of his teaching. They are the ones whom our Lord is referencing when he said, Nobody who has been drinking old wine once knew. And so it will not be odd for the Pharisees to utter these words, The old is good. The words of our Lord should not be construed as him rejecting tradition or the Old Testament. In the early church, the heresy of Marcionism, which saw the New Testament as a clean break from the old, was condemned by the fathers of the church. The Old Testament finds fulfillment in the New Testament, and without the Old Testament, the new cannot be fully understood. It is our Lord who gives us the new wine. Indeed, he is the new wine. He tells us, Behold, I make all things new. God is not making new things, but making all things new. This is the work of renovation, not innovation. And the result of the work will be that we will be made whole, we will be perfected, and we will become the best version of ourselves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.